Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Today is my pleasure to introduce to you Professor Brian Williams, uh, who is a clinician scientist. Uh, Professor Williams is Chair of Medicine at University College London and the director of the National Institute for Health Research uh, from the UCLH Biomedical Research Center and director of research at UCLH. He is past chairman of the European Council on Hypertension of the European Society of Cardiology, past president of the British Hypertension Society, and is also the current secretary of the International Society of Hypertension. Brian, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with me today. It's a, a, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Francine. Look forward to it. So we usually start by asking um, our guests to uh, tell us about this story. So how did you get interested in hypertension and how did you get interested in involved in this society? Okay, so <clears throat> my word, it seems a long time ago now, but I guess to some extent your your interests in your career are influenced by the people that you work with. And quite early on in my career, when I was a, a medical student and then a junior doctor at St. Mary's Hospital in London, uh, the chair of medicine there was Sir Stanley Peart, who was a really big name in hypertension. Stan had, was one of the uh, original workers in the field of the renin angiotensin system and one of the original discoverers of renin. And he was quite a flamboyant and uh, extrovert kind of character, but also quite inspiring. And I think inspiration is something that you look for in your leaders. And uh, certainly I, I got quite interested in hypertension then. And then <clears throat> I had to go and do a sort of junior training rotation clinical. And uh, I moved out of London and I went up to Leicester, which at the time was a sort of unknown to me. But the, one of the reasons I went there, it was a relatively new medical school headed up by John Swales who was a, also a really big name in uh, hypertension. So it was quite obvious that two of the big players in the early part of my clinical career were actually specialists in the field of hypertension and quite big names in, in hypertension research. And then I, I really got interested in nephrology, uh, which was quite an exciting specialty at that time. And uh, I worked for some influential people in in nephrology and then went and did a did a fellowship with the NIH over in Colorado in Denver with Robert Schreier. And Robert Schreier was also a big name in hypertension in the United States, particularly in the context of sodium metabolism and uh, diabetes. <clears throat> so I worked for three really big names in uh, the field of hypertension, all interested in different aspects of it. Uh, and I just got interested in it. And uh, you know, I started attending conferences like young people do, <clears throat> presenting posters and then being selected to present presentations. Got quite a buzz out of that, quite enjoyed the conferences. It was great fun. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I decided at that stage I wanted to be a clinical academic. So I, I never wanted to give up my clinical work. And, uh, and I still, <clears throat> you know, despite probably being one of the most senior doctors in the hospital in London now, um, I'm still doing frontline clinical work. I'm on duty tomorrow, actually, and we'll be looking after the COVID patients coming in the front door. So I still do that. 
because I think it's really important to stay grounded if you're a clinician scientist in clinical work. Uh, I still do my hypertension clinic every week. Um, and, and I really enjoy it. And, 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 and actually it keeps you young because I'm constantly interacting with the clinical teams of young doctors. And uh, I find it really inspiring for me actually. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, so that was my beginning. And, and to be honest, I, you know, it's not like many careers where you plot things out. It was never like that. I mean, you know, it was just things happened around you and you saw an opportunity and at times you didn't even realize it was an opportunity. Things just happen around you. And you, you, you think I'd like to do that and you go and try and do it. And uh, if you succeed at it, you move on to the next thing. So uh, for my, my message all the way through was if I wanted to enjoy it. I mean, if I wasn't enjoying it, I certainly wouldn't be doing anything for the, just for the sake of doing it. For example, I didn't go and work in a lab with somebody because that was a good stepping stone. I did it because I wanted to do it and I enjoyed doing it. And if I didn't enjoy doing it, I wouldn't have done it or I wouldn't have done it for long. Yet. No, that, that's a really important message. And I like that you mentioned about also the importance of uh, keeping in touch with the patients and uh, knowing what is happening there, because I think it's so important that we um, try to drive research that is informed by the patient's needs as well. And there is no better way of knowing that. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, the people, some people um, develop a research career, an outstanding research career working predominantly in the lab or remote from patients. And that's absolutely fine because I think it's complementary to the patient facing work. But actually, if you're interested in clinical research, which I eventually developed my research career in, although I did in my early days spend quite a bit of time in the lab. So I've got a good background in both. And that's been really helpful for my later career in directing a biomedical center where I have to understand the basic science as well as understand the clinical science. But, you know, as a clinical scientist, I think it's quite important to, to see how your work might end up being implemented. And also it's quite relevant, I think, to understand the barriers to implementation and the kind of questions that are really, really important. And to some extent, that's one of the reasons I got involved in guidelines as well, but perhaps I can talk about that later. So, now that I think that I agree that that's really important um, that we consider the barriers for the patients and why they're not getting their blood pressure measured, why they're not taking the pills, why they're not doing some of the basics that we know that can help them control blood pressure and, and being able to talk to patients would be a really important factor into understanding that. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you about to experience sitting in committees. So you have contributed to uh, several uh, societies, including the International Society, but that can have an enormous amount of uh, time. I was wondering if you can comment on what you perceive that were the benefits to you in your career in sitting uh, in these committees. So <clears throat> I think there are two aspects to that question. One is, um, it's not so much about the benefit to me, although I think early on in your career, um, it is important to get experience of sitting on committees uh, because it does give you an insight into how things are done um, and, and how difficult it can be sometimes to develop consensus and develop uh, policy which influences practice. So if you get the opportunity as a young person to, for example, sit in on a guideline committee or shadow somebody who is a leader in your organization, 
it's incredibly good experience. And I, I did it quite early in, in, in both the, the university setup and in the NHS setup. I was quite interested to, to see how people led and their leadership styles. And it's quite interesting to see how different they are actually in some people. Um, and then when I got the opportunity to join a guideline committee or a, uh, I've also been involved in and chaired a lot of um, grant committees for the British Heart Foundation, the Medical Research Council, et cetera. Um, they were superb experiences um, because they give you a broad grounding in, in, in research and they give you an understanding in, in what it, you know, the levels you need to attain to be successful. So that I, I would encourage anybody to do that and get an opportunity. And if, if the opportunity isn't immediately obvious, just ask, you know, if you can attend uh, ex officio and just see how these things operate. It's a great learning experience. Um, but actually, I think in the early days, it's about learning and, and about learning how you could potentially contribute in an effective way. I think later in your career, when you're established, uh, like I guess I am now, you do these sort of things because you want to actually make a difference. You can see the opportunity, for example, chairing a guideline committee is by no means an easy task. I can tell you, I mean, the amount of weekends and evenings and extra work that you have to put in uh, to develop the, particularly as a chair, uh, to make that a successful enterprise is absolutely enormous. Um, and I think you have to be doing it for the right reasons and you have to be the kind of person who can meld a consensus. Uh, you can't just go in as like a bull in a china shop and say, this is the way it's gonna be because it won't work that way. And you have to learn how to, to manage your colleagues uh, and, and, and get, you know, bring them together towards a, a common purpose and a common consensus. So, so that's a skill that you learn over time. I don't think some people are better at it than others. And, and there are different styles, which we could perhaps talk about, but, but I think, you know, that, that is something you need experience at. It's not something you just automatically have. And you gain that through doing those sort of things. But I wouldn't say they're a thankless task because clearly you wouldn't do something if you didn't feel like you're getting something out of it. But I think if you do it for the reason to make yourself famous or to make, you know, to become some sort of big cheese, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. And actually, you won't get anything out of it because you'll suddenly realize it's very, very hard work. I think you have to do these things for the right reasons. It's not just about getting something on your CV. I mean, I don't need that anymore. I mean, uh, these days, it's not. So anything that I choose to do now, like, for example, more recently, taking on the ISH secretarial role, which, again, is another big job. And, and over the last year has been an enormous amount of work behind the scenes very unglamorous things like sorting out um, all kinds of processes and policies within the society that, you know, Maggi used the president and I have conversations late into the evening quite often about ISH matters. <clears throat> so, so these are things that you do because you want to try and improve uh, a society and try and, uh, you know, you develop a passion for hypertension. You really want to make it an important topic and actually get young people involved because, you know, we're, we're not going to be here forever. And, uh, you know, you need to start bringing through a new generation of uh, young people who are going to succeed the people who are leading at the moment. And I'm really pleased at the ISH that it has a really good mix of sort of very experienced um, leaders and, and emergent leaders and, and people who are really terrific and, and young and enthusiastic um, and, and bring an enormous amount to the table. So, so I think getting that mixed 
balanced portfolio of leadership is really important and it's very new actually i i think if you look at many societies they're still laden with uh, older leadership uh whereas actually things that i get involved in now whether it's in the nhs here or whether it's in the university that there's a big focus on emergent leaders and um, both in science and, and medicine trying to encourage people to develop their leadership skills, maybe get some formal training, some informal, uh, you know, uh, uh, coaching uh, and, and really come on and, and become the next generation of leaders, which is critical, actually. And it's particularly critical in hypertension because when I started, it was hugely fashionable because it was a really exciting area. There were lots of new trials beginning to emerge in hypertension much in the same way as, for example, it has in heart failure more recently in diabetes. There were lots of new drugs. There was huge amounts of investment going in for research, both commercial and non-commercial. And, and, and since the last 10 years, we've gone through a bit less of that. I mean, in the sense that it's become a more established treatment paradigm. There have been less new drugs and innovations coming through. So um, it, it perhaps is you know, you know, it's harder for us to make a noise with young people to enthuse them to become involved in hypertension because maybe it hasn't got the same sparkle as it had maybe 10 or 20 years ago. However, I would say that's changing again now. And, and we're seeing new innovations coming in, new treatments, a big new focus on hypertension as such an important public health issue that I think, you know, younger people are seeing it as an exciting opportunity again, and we need to grasp that. I mean, we need to, to make sure that we develop the next generation as, as, as capably as we can. And, and, and that's one of the things that I see as my, my big responsibility now, both internally and in where I work in London, but also externally through societies like ISH. Thank you. Now that's so lovely. And I see my responsibility as uh, similar. <laughs> And I'm still very junior, so I have still a lot of work to do and a lot of people to bring along and um, ensure that we have the right support in place so they can continue to the research and hypertension as well. Yeah, I, I actually, Francine, I <clears throat> I don't like the idea that the terminology junior. Um, it's used a lot in hospitals, you know, junior doctor, and I I think it's slightly disparaging in the sense that. Anybody who is a doctor and is a clinical scientist quite often has done a higher degree, um, is also medically trained. They're not junior. They're, they're, they're pretty senior people. They've, they've been through a huge amount of education and training, and they, they have a lot of skills. So they may still have a long experiential career ahead of them where they will grow and, and continue to develop those skills. But I really don't like the... Uh, the terminology of junior. So I, I like I prefer the word emergent. Um, in other words, yeah. you know, people who are <clears throat> on a career track that will eventually lead to leadership of, of some substantial organization or or or, or, or function. And I, and I and I think they're just on a journey really. Um, and and I, that's what I prefer to see it as. Yeah, no, fair enough. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, and as uh, uh, you probably know, a big focus of the work that we do through this podcast and uh, through the committee that I chair is about mentoring. So I wanted to shift a little bit the focus and um, well, we're talking about next generation and so on. So mentoring is a really important 
uh, um, topic and a really important, uh, um, I guess, contribution that we do to the society to try to foster these emerging leaders. Uh, I was wondering if you can define your mentorship experience in one word. Um, I would say two words, if I could. Listen and inspire, if you can. You know, I mean, I think that for me, if I look at the mentors that I've had, and uh, I think the quality in them that I really appreciated, one was the ability to listen. And that's quite a hard skill to, 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 uh, to learn as a, as a leader, to, to sit back and listen. Uh, and, uh, and I think young people really appreciate that because they're often quite nervous about that conversation. And when that conversation is very easy because they can, they're allowed to talk and then they get more confident and then probably tell you things that they hadn't originally planned to tell you, but because you, they, they feel like they've got a warm relationship, they can tell you things that are really troubling them. And then maybe that is the breakthrough that will allow you to reassure them that, that um, you know, it's not always a glorious path to success. Interestingly, um, here in the organization that I run, we have um, an education and leadership team <clears throat> that I appointed. And part of their work is about building resilience and, uh, you know, recognizing that, you know, a journey is, 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 is up and down. There are, there are high points, but also there are many low points as well. And it's about how you, uh, you know, develop resilience in your in your team to cope with the low points and look forward to the high points. And I think that's really important. And actually, one probably one of the most useful lectures I ever give to the the group of uh, young emergent leaders here was uh, my my title was uh, my failures, and I and I basically stood up and gave a 40 minute lecture about everything that I'd done that had failed. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, some of them said to me, it was, you know, the best lecture they'd ever heard. It was totally inspiring because first of all, they, they recognize that people they see ultimately as very successful also have had exactly the same failure experiences as they've maybe already had. And secondly, they could see that Part of being successful is having resilience to to bounce back um, from failure and and go again uh, and 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 really in get try and get something out of everything that doesn't work. Try and learn from that experience, even though it's sometimes quite challenging and difficult. Uh, and 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 you know put it to good use next time you come up with the same challenge. You'll you'll handle it better. And when people talk about experienced leaders, what they're really talking about is people who've experienced failure um, and learned from it and not been broken by it. Um, and, and I think, you know, an academic career, for example, a clinical academic career is really tough. I mean, I, I you know, at the end of the year, I have four appraisals, can you believe? Um, and it kind of makes me realize I have four jobs. <laughs> so, you know, I get appraised by my university leadership, the, uh, the senior leaders. I get appraised by the chief executive of the hospital because I'm on the board of the hospital and 
have a senior role in the hospital. I then get appraised by somebody else within the research environment. And then I have one other uh, sort of general appraisal in my leadership role of the institute. So uh, th th those appraisals uh, are constructive, but they also remind you, remind me that I have so many different roles. Um, and that's what happens as you become successful. You, you are um, juggling a number of uh, different roles and, and that requires resilience and it requires focus and it requires the ability to not get distracted and, and, get, and focus on what you need to get done. And, and they're things that you learn from having done them badly. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I, I think, you know, it was quite amazing when I was giving that lecture, you saw people's faces like in total shock <laughs> when you're describing some of the things that went really badly and the grants you didn't get and the papers that didn't get accepted and the jobs you didn't get, et cetera, et cetera. Because they, they see, kind of feel that these people they see on the stage and giving the big presentations have always had a sort of glorious, successful path. And in reality, it's very different from that. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that we do the podcast is to humanize our superstars so that people can realize that they're just like um, everybody else and they are people and they work incredibly hard to get where they are and they have resilience and they have grit and, uh, and they keep bouncing back. And it's amazing that people are so generous to share with us their journey. So thank you so much. And I would love to hear this lecture. Perhaps we should organize for you to give yeah. us a, a, <laughs> yeah, it's advice. Quite I mean, it was quite thought provoking putting it together. But I also liked your term there, generous, because, you know, a lot of young people um, who aspire to go on and lead, you know, need to realize that leadership isn't about glory. Um, it's about being very generous with your time. And, and, and one of the challenges for me in leadership is that I still have to stay at the top of the pile academically. So, so I do need to devote some of my time to actually my own research group. In fact, one of the things I did when I took on significant leadership roles within the university and the NHS is I downsized my research group. Um, even though I could have poured money into it from the resources that were coming in, I downsized it for the simple reason that I felt there was only a certain size of group that I can manage now uh, and give the right amount of time to and the right amount of support to. Because I've seen many senior people, you know, big names who take on too many people uh, to supervise. And then, don't, and then the individuals don't really get a great experience. And, that, and I would find that very frustrating as, a, as an emergent person, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, and, and, I, and I try not to do that now. So, so I think, you know, you have to understand that if you're going to take on a leadership responsibility, it is a big responsibility. And you have to think about what am I going to stop doing? Um, because you can't just keep loading responsibilities onto yourself because you'll fail. And uh, or at least you will not succeed as well as you should. And uh, so one of the things I learned about leadership is that you have to give yourself to others. You you, you know, when you're leading, people appreciate that, you, you know, if they've got a problem, they're going to come to you and they expect you to help solve it. So rather than just focusing on your own research and your own clinical work and your own, 
you know, your own career and solving the problems that you have as an individual. As you become a leader, you end up having to solve other people's problems too. And if that frustrates you, then you're on the wrong path because it'll just be immensely frustrating because you will spend a huge amount of your week <clears throat> going to meetings, having conversations, trying to sort out problems within an organization or beyond that don't necessarily benefit you individually, but are part of your responsibility as a leader. So I, I think that's, that's a really important message that was said to me early on, that you have to make a decision about if it's all about you, then you'll be a bad leader. Uh, it's got to be about the team. It's got to be about the people you lead. And that's true when you're a mentor as well. I mean, you know, if you're a mentor and you take on that responsibility, it's a huge responsibility. And some of the people that I've mentored over the years required very little uh, attention and support, but others required more. And my strategy is always to have an open door policy and just say, come and see me. You know, I can't always see you immediately. I'll try if it's urgent, but you know, let's get together, let's sit and have a coffee, let's talk. And I find that often the talking and just listening is, is the most powerful thing you can do as a mentor. And of course, I, I have a strategy where I try and open doors for the people that I mentor uh, to, give, to, to create opportunities. But I, but I don't push them through the doors. I mean, I think, I think people need to you know, stand on their own two feet. And I think when the opportunity arises, if they can't see it, and if they can't take it, then probably it's not for them anyway. And, uh, you know, I think a really strong mentorship isn't about doing everything for everybody. It's about listening, providing advice and opening up opportunities for people to take um, and, and letting them make a decision whether they want to take it, because it will be more work when they do. And they, you know, they, they need to decide whether they're going to take it on. But I, I love it. I mean, I. You know, I love seeing young people succeed. And uh, I, I, you know, I look back very fondly on the, the kind of support that I got from very senior people. And it wasn't, you know, uh, organized meetings on a regular basis. It was those impromptu opportunities when I felt I needed to talk to somebody that they were available to listen and advise. Oh, yeah. Was there a moment in your career specifically that you realized you needed a mentor? Um, I, I wouldn't say there was a specific moment. I, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I haven't had somebody senior that I didn't feel I could talk to. Um, even now, and I, and I think it's quite important, actually, when you're in your whatever stage you are in your career, even at a very senior level, that you take a step back and you say, if I needed to talk to somebody who would I talk to? Uh, and, 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 and it generally becomes a fairly natural thing. There's, you know, you gravitate towards the kind of person that you feel will understand you and, and support you. Um, and so even at this senior level, I have a couple of people that I would call uh, if, uh, you know, you get job offers, I, you get headhunters, you get people who contact you. And sometimes it looks quite interesting and I'll have a quick call with somebody uh, and say, what do you think? And, you know, talk it through and then move on. But, you know, I think, I think having that kind of uh, person in your life or people in your life is really important. So as you go through, if there's somebody that you've enjoyed 
interacting with, even if you move into a different sphere, and actually even more importantly, if you move into a different sphere. So, you know, they can advise you from a sort of external position and somebody that you may no longer be working for, but stay in touch with, and you know, and, 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 and just send them a note to let them know how you're getting on and keep them in touch with your career. I think it's more frustrating when you haven't seen anybody for 20 years, and then suddenly you get a letter saying, can you do me a reference? And you think that's actually quite challenging because, you know, I, I yeah, of course, I'll, I'll try and help you, but I don't know anything about you anymore. You know, I mean, I haven't seen you for 20 years. I mean, so I think, you know, it's important to try and keep in touch with <clears throat> not just because they're important people, but people that you found very valuable and very helpful. Uh, stay in touch with them, even if it's only dropping them a line, you know, once in a while to let them know how you're getting on. They really appreciate that. No, that's that's very true. Yeah, thank you. And uh, what is your mentoring style? And can you give us any examples of ways that you have helped your mentees? Yeah. So my my style varies depending on the individual. You you quickly get to know whether somebody is the kind of person that you want. You know, wants you really quite heavily engaged some others don't want you that heavily engaged and will want to come to you when they've got an issue so I will my style is generally to say let's schedule some meetings and 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 meet on a, on a periodic basis and I'm always available if you need to talk to me um, and what you find is that the scheduled meetings are enthusiastically attended by some mentees and, and and a bit of a bind for others because they just don't feel they need that kind of regularity etc etc so I, I'm very flexible. Uh, I do say to everybody, you know, my door's always open. And if you want to contact me and ask me for advice, I mean, I get people contacting me from all over the world. Sometimes people I don't even know um, asking my advice or asking me if they could send me a paper to look at or asking me if there's any research opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And I, even when I'm very busy, I still try and go out of my way and help where I can uh, and recognize that that little moment of help and support is, is hugely valued by, by individuals, particularly if you're a pretty senior person. The fact that you've even bothered to read the email and particularly if you bother to reply and uh, provide what might be some helpful advice, I think it's, it's greatly appreciated and I fully accept, I, I recognize that. <clears throat> so I guess the answer to my question, Francine, is I'm highly flexible as a as a mentor i you know i i i i'm you know i it depends on the individual very very much um on the individual i think an example there are just so many examples of people i've i've worked with over the years actually at various levels i mean mentorship sometimes might be supervising a phd student or it might be mentoring a junior doctor um, I'm doing one at the moment, for example, who's a, a really talented guy, young guy, who's decided he wants to have a career in data science within the health service. And he's hugely talented. I mean, brilliant. And, and there is no career structure. So, you know, so, for example, he hasn't done a higher degree in computer science, but he's very computer literate and he understands how electronic health record systems work. I see him as an absolute leader in the future as a clinically focused orientated person in health data science, the kind of person you absolutely need. So, it, so my style with him is to sit down and say, okay, 
what do you need to do com to complete your clinical training? I'll speak to a few people and get some flexibility in getting you to do that. And what do you and what you also need is about 50% of your time freed up so that you can work on pro projects and learn how to to implement some of the electronic health record capabilities to support research and development and also you know business intelligence within organizations actually use data in a constructive way and it's been really exciting actually to try and plot this path so that he effectively becomes a clinical data scientist uh, within a within a big healthcare organization and maybe he'll end up as a chief information officer or something like that but you know <clears throat> that i find that quite inspiring because he's inspiring he's fascinating he hasn't chosen to go down a a well-trodden path. He's trying to <clears throat> really be a vanguard and forge a completely new career path. And the irony is <clears throat> he's now got, it's a bit like the Pied Piper. I had, I organized a breakfast the other week in uh, some trendy part of London with all these techie types. I was completely out of place, <clears throat> but they're all young techie types in this place. Uh, and, and, you know, a whole load of them turned up. Um, you, know, in, you know, inspired by this guy saying, oh, I, you know, we're meeting and, we're, and now I've got a whole group of them <clears throat> wanting to, you know, forge a career path in this area, which, you know, is, is so, 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 so it's so flexible and so open minded. But I find it actually they say to me, it's inspiring that, you know, you're helping us and that you're trying to open the doors. But I find it inspiring meeting with them, actually. Uh, that they're so enthusiastic and they, you know, listening to them talk about what they want to try and do to the, you know, the healthcare delivery pathways and things like that. It's just totally inspiring. I mean, it, it's just amazing to think that they're going to be there um, over the next few years, making making a difference. I mean, it helps in my case that I can also, you know, move budget from our biomedical center to support some of their endeavors. But, you know, I think what, whatever position you're in, if you're in a position of with some authority and power, then you should use it uh, to support these kind of people because they're terrific. Absolutely. And I think uh, something that for me is particularly important is that uh, the people are the biggest resources, oh. and the most important part of the job. So yeah. I, I do spend a lot of time with my team and with my mentees as well. And that gives me an enormous amount of joy. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It's like having another family, you know, I mean, it's uh, the young people, children, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're bored with uh, being in the company of inspiring young people and you're bored with life, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's fantastic. I mean, and it's a great, it's a great privilege actually to be able to do it, you know, and I really look forward to those meetings, even if I'm in a busy week, I'll <clears throat> prioritize them because I quite enjoy them. No, I agree. Yeah. And uh, what traits do you think a good mentee has? Well, I think, as I mentioned, I think listening is is probably the most important trait um, um, because, you know, generally, uh, did you say mentee or mentor? Sorry. Mentee. Ah, a good mentee. Ah, well, I think... Um, It'll, it'll depend on, on, on individuals, but I think the most important thing that I say to everyone uh, who's a mentee is that you won't get anywhere without hard work. If, if you honestly believe that talent alone will, will get you to succeed, then, then, you, then you're making a big mistake because everybody's talented that, that you know, has these aspirations. But the, the, the universal 
characteristic of successful people is is that they 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 generally come from a, a culture of working very hard and very diligently and and, and are extremely focused on the on what they're trying to do uh, and and success doesn't happen without that i mean there are some people who've been lucky i guess in certain spheres but it's very very rare you know that uh, so i i think that's the most important thing if you if you have a mentee that you know isn't quite as committed as you feel they need to be then i'll often be quite frank with them and say look you know you're not going to make it if you if you don't put in the amount of hours and dedication and and the focus needed because you know this is highly competitive but also even with the the best skills available you know you need to work very hard and you need to be available and you need to recognize that you'll make sacrifices to succeed and you'll continue doing that all the way through your career actually i mean you know you make a lot of personal sacrifice uh, if you're going to be a leader and and that's really important and you know, if you want to be a leader of anything and it's all about you and that's why you want to do it because it makes your CV look better, then then you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. I mean, the great thing for me now is I don't need to make my CV look better. You know, I so anything I choose to do now, I'm choosing to do it because I, I want to do it for good reason. And that's and that's really important. But when you're younger, that's not the case. And I think, you know, uh, an element of it has to be that you really want to do it. Uh, because if you don't really want to do it, then you're not going to put the effort in and you're not going to succeed. No, I agree. Yeah. It was quite interesting. I mean, going back to the resilience thing, I was, I was reading uh, the other week um, uh, an article about leadership and some of the big leaders like prime ministers and presidents. And, and a characteristic of many of them is that they... they um, they lost a parent when they were young. Um, that doesn't mean to say that that kind of tragedy is, is essential to succeed, but what it shows is there's something about life experience and, and, and some sort of tough experience and, and resilience that has enabled them even at an early age to sort of develop an element of resilience and coping that somehow has I mean, I think it was an extraordinary statistic, like sort of 40 or 50% of these leaders that had been a life characteristic, which, you know, is, is much higher than, than, than you would expect. So, so I think um, the knockbacks and the, the hard experiences early in your career, don't see them as, a, as, as something that's depressing. See them as, as, as something that you've, you've encountered and, 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 and overcome. And, and, and makes you much stronger and, and much more able to succeed in the future. Absolutely, I think that that's really beautiful uh, that you put it that way and I completely agree. And uh, one of the um, difficulties as well is when people are moving labs and particularly this uh, base where people are moving uh, uh, research institutions that they don't get sometimes the opportunity to go and meet in person. Um, one of the key challenges is identifying a good training environment. Do you have any advice on what uh, do you think people need to be looking for when they're looking for a new place to do a PhD or, or postdoc or any type of training? <clears throat> yeah, it's a great point. I mean, so I go back to, I chaired a couple of quite big influential grant committees here. And, and of course that's always a big part of the decision about whether to give funding to an individual. First of all, are they, 
have they got the right talent uh, as an individual? And secondly, are they going to the right institution and being going to get the right supervision? Because a good person in a good place will always make a success of the investment that you make. So even if there's problems with the project, uh, and there often are, because whenever you put a project towards a grant committee, and this is an important message for, for younger people, you know, you'll submit a grant and you'll get criticisms coming back. I mean, quite frankly, I've never seen any proposal sail through without criticism. And there's always an opinion from somebody that would do something differently. And it's even more striking in clinical research than it is in lab research. There tends to be a bit more consensus about the approach in lab research. Clinical research is, is a nightmare because you get you know 20 people around the table on the panel, I'm chairing the panel, you get 20 different opinions <clears throat> about how the project should be done. So you have to sort of navigate that. But one of the things I always say to the panel when I'm chairing, look, this is a great person and they're going to be working in a great institution that doesn't usually allow people to fail. Um, so even though we may have some reservations about the project, we can feedback those reservations. And I think we can be fairly secure that the investment we're gonna make in this individual is going to be good investment because they're a great person in a great place. So I, so I, so I think you're absolutely spot on when you say, where should I go? Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a world leading university. I mean, you know, UCL, where I am, is one of the top universities in the world. But actually, not everything it does is, is the best, you know, and, and, and there are areas where, you know, maybe the research supervision and the quality of what we do isn't as good as in other areas. And there are also institutions and organizations around the world that are not in the top 50 or whatever global institutions. But within those institutions, there are areas of excellence that are international quality and really outstanding. And maybe within that institution, the individual leading that area of excellence and outstanding work is so grateful for outstanding people to come and work with them that they give even better supervision and better mentorship than perhaps you would get in one of the big, you know, massive, you know, uh, research machines out there that, that are out there. So, so it is very much looking, thinking about your, in, your own individual self and the kind of thing that would make you feel comfortable looking uh, i think the most important thing for me is is it a project you want to do don't take on something you don't want to do just because it's a famous mentor in a famous institution because if you're not enjoying it um the work is so tough and the demands will be so great that it will just be miserable uh, you know make sure that first and foremost you know, the project in front of you is something that inspires you. There's something you're passionate about because you're going to live and breathe it for the next few years, right? So, so that's so important. And then it is important that the person you're going to be working with is somebody that not only inspires you, but you like, uh, because you've got to work with them and you're going to be interacting with them. Find something about them. Talk to other people who've worked with them. Um, you know, don't just look at the reputation of the individual or the organization, but have a chat with, with some of the other uh, uh, PhD students or other you know, researchers that have worked in that lab and say, what was it like? Did you, know, did you enjoy it? You know, what are the challenges? And you know, it's confidential between us. Let's talk about what really goes on in there. You know, is it something I'm gonna really appreciate? So it can be 
quite challenging. Sometimes you can get very starry-eyed when you get an opportunity in a big place and a with a with a with a big name. But you've got to ask the question: Are you going to get the right training, and are you going to going to really enjoy it? For the most part, you would in most of these organisations, but not always. And I think it's really really important that you know you get to do what you really want to do, uh, and uh, and really enjoy it. And 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 that's that's what I did. I I did predominantly lab based research when I was in. Colorado, and then when I came back to the UK, I was funded by a British Heart Foundation Fellowship, and did predominantly cell-based laboratory work. But actually, when I finished all that work, and it, and it was great, I, I got a little bit frustrated that I couldn't see how it was going to impact. I was going to do my clinical job, and my research and clinical job were completely separate from each other. They were there was no sort of overlap, and I I then realised I, I I wanted to get more clinically orientated in my research and I shifted more into physiology and and that's where I've stayed and got into trials but even in the trials I've done physiology as part of the 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 sort of mechanistic approach and I I think that's for me and I did that not necessarily the best move a lot of people were saying no no you you know you're publishing in top journals you're doing all this good basic stuff and I said yeah but I'm not it's not fulfilling me I mean Whereas I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm a clinical focused guy and I want to do clinical orientated research. And at that time, it wasn't the fashionable thing to do. Most people were going off and doing molecular biology and genetics rather than clinical research. But actually, you know, it was a good decision I made and, 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 and I've enjoyed it ever since. And, and in fact, the, the background in basic science didn't go to waste because now I'm, you know, director of a big biomedical institute. It does cancer research. It does immunology it does infectious diseases everything else and, and and of course the grounding in laboratory sciences stood me in good stead because i can understand all that stuff as well as the as the clinical stuff thank you i, I really enjoy what you're saying and uh, i think for someone who is an emergent lab head that was quite uh, reassuring because it is one of the attractives that i can give more uh, time and more mentoring and more support to my mentees and perhaps some of the big lab heads uh, that have too many people in the lab. Um, but um, yeah, no, that resonates with me a lot as well. Um, I don't know whether you know my story, but I, I had cancer six years ago. Um, and it was so lovely of the ISH that uh, they all signed a card and sent me a card of support um, while I was having treatment. But I'm a molecular geneticist, and it really shifted the way that I was seeing my research as well. Uh, so similarly to what you're saying, that you felt a disconnect between the lab and the clinic. And before, I don't see patients because I'm a geneticist, but I similarly felt that I wanted my research to have a bigger impact in the lives of people living with uh, hypertension. So I shifted my research as well to try to address that. Uh, that's, uh, well, that's inspiring, Francine, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, I'm glad you've done well from from the adversity. And again, it's a good example of what we were talking about earlier um, about you know resilience being so important and and building resilience and recognizing that you know there'll be challenges along the way, and you've had one of the biggest. But I mean, that's so that's great to see success. I also you know it's great to see the ISH um doing something which i think is pretty unique um within societies i mean i've been involved with the esc i've been involved with the esh i've been involved with the british society uh and and you know we all everybody enthuses about encouraging more young people to get involved but we 
those, you know, most societies don't do much to actually develop that culture. And I, and I think, I know, um, you know, when Maggi and Fadi set up the sort of young mentoring group and, and uh, you know, it's grown and grown and, it, and it's been one of the great successes of the ISH. And actually, you know, the ISH being an international dimension uh, and that's where its strength is. This is so important because first of all, um, you know, we've got to grow people in all parts of the world. And secondly, people in different parts of the world may want to have an opportunity to work in another part of the world and get their experience in research and clinical practice, et cetera, for whatever reason. So there is a unique opportunity within the ISH to promote that. And I think it's one of the strongest aspects of what the ISH does. And, you know, I think it's pretty amazing, actually, what you guys are doing. And uh, let's hope through these podcasts that uh, people can see that the leadership um, what, whether it's of ISH or any other aspect of research and clinical medicine are, are just humans who've been through the same, you know, uh, pathway as, as many of you will be going through now. And, uh, and, 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 you know, many of you will succeed. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's the great thing. I mean, if you, if you put the effort in, um, you will succeed in some way, um, eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and one question that I still struggle sometimes with um, that I wanted to ask you is, how did you overcome talking to someone you found intimidating? If that was uh, the case, because <laughs> that uh, happens to me all well, the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, actually. And, and, uh, and I've come across that in, even, even in my later career. So uh, maybe not so much intimidating, but kind of sometimes you meet people who are in different spheres of life or different walks of life. They've grown up in a different way or a different culture. Uh, and it's, it can be quite challenging. I, I usually do a little bit of research about them um, before I meet them, if, I, if, it, if it's an arranged meeting. And, and I think the most important piece of advice that I could give is that quite often they're equally intimidated about meeting you. Um, um, because they they don't know much about you and 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 the most important thing I think I've always felt is to just be yourself be really natural just be yourself be warm you know and you know I often start by saying I've been looking forward to meeting you and uh, and just being open and warm and it, and it can be quite disarming uh, particularly if they're a really difficult character and there are let's face it some difficult characters out there difficult personalities sometimes quite passive aggressive type personalities, you know, you go into the room and they don't really want to see you. They're busy. They're not even looking at you. That can be quite a challenging, almost hostile type environment, but it's very disarming for them. If you are very pleasant and very nice and, and just very open and be yourself. So that's what I would strongly recommend. Um, just, just um, be yourself and let them have the challenge of opening up to you and, uh, and, and, and listening to what you've got to say. I think the other thing that I would say quite strongly is that if you do get the opportunity and you're trying to make a pitch for something, you know, usually that's what's happening. Think about what you're going to say in advance and crystallize it and keep it simple. So, because busy people are busy people and, uh, you know, they, 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 they won't appreciate you rambling on for 20 minutes um, without breath 
um, you know, they'll want to, you know, say, what, what do you need to see me about? What do you want to talk about? And then if you go, oh, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not that impressive. So try and think in advance about what you want to, what message you want to get across, what questions you want to ask, uh, and try and be as succinct as possible. But you shouldn't really be intimidated by anybody, really, uh, because I think if you go in with that attitude, they're, they're basically in a role They're they're in a leadership role, fair enough, but they're in a role and you have a role too. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting, you know, when one of the things that I always find quite interesting is when, um, when, when, when journal reviews come back and you've submitted a paper. So it's a slightly different situation. And I remember in the early days, I got a, my first paper back. It was, you know, something like JCI, Journal of Clinical Investigation, big journal. And the review was, you know, really aggressive and really quite challenging. And I was very upset about it. And I showed it to the boss. It was Robert Try at the time. Uh, and, and Robert said, you know, oh, that's fine, fine. You know, we can deal with this. And it was, you know, amazing to me that, you know, and, and it, one of the things he said to me, poor old Robert died last year. He was a great mentor. Um, Robert said to me at the time, he said, look, you've got to remember, this is being reviewed by some busy person. Uh, who's probably looked at this on a train or looked at this on a flight or, you know, fitted it in with everything else they're doing. But you know more about this than they do. This is your work. This is, you know, you've done these experiments. You know more about this or as much about this as they do in this very niche area. And it was very good advice. And uh, so I wasn't intimidated anymore by reviews. I quite often combated and I get them back and I think, well, good point. You know, I acknowledge that. That's a good point. I'll take that on board. But quite often there's quite a lot of nonsense as well in reviews and people writing uh, terrible things which aren't true or just misinterpreting things. To some extent, if it's misinterpreted, that might be your fault. You haven't been clear in the way you presented it. But but I think, you know, you should never be, you know, too downcast um, um, by by commentaries coming back that are critical. That's Maybe a final thing I would say about uh, what I say to mentees is that you have to accept criticism. You know, you have to understand that, you know, research and science isn't the art of perfection. It is, you know, it's incremental advances and you are making a suggestion or you're presenting some new data, which somebody else who's been working in the field for many years may think that they are the the people that are in charge of this area and you've got this little upstart coming along with all these new data and it's so you've got to understand some of the sort of the sentimentality and the 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 way in which some people might approach your new ideas and sometimes they'll be hostile and sometimes they'll be critical <clears throat> but if you believe in them and you know you're right then it's kind of managing that and and you know you learn to manage it you learn to you learn to manage upwards, as I always say. Whenever you're as you're growing up in your career, you're not only learning to lead the people who are being led by you, but you learn to manage upwards. Uh, yeah, by that I mean manage the people above you, uh, so that they um, do what you want them to do, uh, <laughs> and that's part of uh, being successful. It's not just it's managing the people around you, not only the people who are you, your direct line responsibility but basically learning to manage everything around you so that 
so that you can create the right path. <clears throat> so, you know, feedback from journals, you know, read it, <clears throat> take it on board, uh, but don't be overly sensitive if, uh, about anything because, you know, some people are over the top in their criticism of uh, research, but you've got to understand where they're coming from. They've been working in this field for many years and they think they're right. And you may be challenging their philosophy and you've got to be skilled in the way that <clears throat> you do that because uh, it's combative. Well, thank you. That's great advice. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, no doubt you've come across it too. I mean, uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in the last part of the interview, I wanted to ask a few questions about diversity and inclusion. And yeah. that's something that the ISH has had a, a great focus in the past uh, several years now. And uh, I wanted to know your opinion on what do you think is the biggest barrier around diversity and inclusion and how we can address it in hypertension research. So <clears throat> this is this is a, an important area. And, you know, many organizations are focusing on this now, and rightly so, uh, after a long time. In my, you know, even here in our organization in the biomedical center, we have a uh, a whole team of people that are looking at this. I think at the moment we're baselining and trying to understand where we are in terms of our current diversity and inclusion in our leadership. And because uh, in the leadership, it's important. Uh, uh, and also in our recruits. And then secondarily trying to understand the barriers. <clears throat> Quite often the discussion fo focuses around ethnicity and race. Um, but there's another aspect of inclusion that is really important to me, um, uh, and that is um, social class. <clears throat> um, you know, uh, and, and maybe that's more relevant to the United Kingdom. But I think there are there are class structures in all societies across the world. <clears throat> and if you look at medicine, <clears throat> for example, um, I think something like twenty five percent of the patients that we serve are working class um, in my country. And that will be true in most parts of the world, if not more, 4% of doctors are working class. Um, that's appalling. That's, that's the lowest statistic of inclusion. If you look at <clears throat> sexual orientation, if you look at uh, ethnicity, race, any other issue of inclusion, it's better <clears throat> than, than, than social class. So, and uh, I come from a working class background. My dad worked on the docks on the ships. Uh, and, you know, that was part of the resilience, I guess, that helped me succeed. But, but again, I don't think we get enough people so coming from those backgrounds. So one of the challenges with ethnicity, diversity, inclusion, <clears throat> the agenda, is there's a poverty um, of aspiration, um, in some cases, driven by uh, an expectation of failure <clears throat> and we need to address that we need to understand why young people from different aspects different parts of society are not going into science why they're not going into medicine <clears throat> what they perceive the barriers to be <clears throat> so there are two aspects of our work that we're doing and i think the ish should be doing one is trying to do uh, try and understand what the barriers are um, you know, where, where the barriers are, what the barriers are. Some of the barriers are about the attitudes of the employer. Some of the barriers are actually the attitudes of the applicant in the sense that they 
think it's hopeless because they look at the statistics and who can blame them? You know, they look at the statistics and they can see what, what goes on. So that's important. So I think it's good to see that many of the big organizations around the world, the universities, the healthcare sector, the big employers are beginning to take this seriously at last and beginning to recognize that if you have a more inclusive workforce that is more representative of the people that you serve, then you're going to get a better service generally. And, and it just, it's just a healthier organization. But of course, it won't change overnight because you, what you don't want is the other end of the spectrum, which is kind of, you know, nominating people to be on boards as tokenistic, you know, that basically what you, it's going to take a while to grow the emergent leaders with the requisite diversity to eventually take on those leadership roles across boards. So I see it as a sort of medium term project. But, you know, I, it's great that the ISH grasped this long before many other organizations grasped it. But even the ISH, you know, you're going to have to build uh, your emergent leaders and you're going to have to encourage that culture right across the board. So eventually we do have no obstacles to progress for anybody, wherever they are. There's a second aspect to it. Part of it is about employment and, uh, you know, that we just talked about. But the other bit that we're also interested in is the EDI agenda in research itself. So when you look at the populations of people who take part in research, they tend not to be representative of the wider population. So in other words, we started doing some work around this, looking at the the people that we actually recruit into trials, are they representative of the people who actually get the diseases? And quite often the answer is no. So, so you know, we are underrepresented on many of the ethnic groups and the, the diversity that uh, fully represents the population. And therefore you have to question whether some of the strategies for implementation, some of the strategies for uh, our, uh, delivery of treatments may be influenced by factors that have not been considered in a trial. So I think organizations like our own National Institute of Health Research here are doing a lot of work around that to try and understand the barriers to inclusion. And some of those barriers are, you know, basically that our research materials aren't in the right language, that sometimes we don't think about cultural things that might influence recruitment into research. So, so it's not just about employment. It's also about, and, and career opportunities, it's also about the research itself, particularly on the clinical agenda, making sure that we appropriately address what might be genetic influences, that might be, you know, cultural influences that, that, that aren't necessarily represented in the patients we recruit. So I think it's a massive agenda. <clears throat> there is, a, you know, there's a, there was a danger, I would say, that the importance and the seriousness of this could be trivialized by being seen as an agenda, whereas actually it's very important because, you know, it's, and as I say, the inclusive side of it goes beyond just what traditionally gets discussed, which is sort of race and ethnicity issues. Uh, it goes into, you know, sexual orientation, but also, as I say, into social class. And that will be a, a bigger or lesser issue depending on where you live. In UK, it's huge there's still a massive class structure with an establishment and what everything in the UK, um, in other parts of the world, it's, it's less so, but you know, you, you'll find it everywhere. And, and, and again, that's really important to address.
I agree, and thank you for sharing that. I agree that that's really important. And even in terms of COVID vaccination, you see, like, there is a yeah. uptake yeah. according to social class as well. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that raises is 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 also the impact the influence of social media um and uh you know we need to understand that I, i've been going on about that at the ish that you know we need to communicate with our you know constituency and and we can have a website and we can put out hypertension news and newsletters that's all well and good <clears throat> but a lot of younger people especially now um use social media extensively if not exclusively uh, and therefore, we need a much stronger uh, presence in that domain, I think, particularly to reach younger people, uh, which is what we're trying to do through the society. I think combating misinformation is uh, uh, really difficult to do, uh, but it's a really important work that we can contribute yeah. into. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you're right. I mean, you know, because we are an international society, we have to be culturally aware. Uh, and, and regionally aware, and, and to some extent, even more so do we need to reflect that in our leadership, but also our regional advisory groups, which <clears throat> I'm pretty excited that have been reinvigorated. You know, in the last year, as I mentioned in the ISH, we've been doing a lot of work around the structures and the processes and the things that we're trying to do. And one of the things that we're really keen on was reinvigorating the re regional advisory groups, which... Um, I think it lost some of their purpose. <clears throat> and we're now seeing, you know, so much fantastic work being done within regions by people who own that. <clears throat> and, you know, the leadership, there's a lot of young people involved now. We're really dynamic in those regional advisory groups. So I think they're the lifeblood of the society, actually, and, and, and something we need to continue to focus on and grow even more and invest in. We need to be spending more of our resource in supporting the regional advisory groups to do some of the work they do. And uh, something you mentioned as well is about uh, who is in the leadership group and how that needs to reflect um, our community. And I think that that's a really important uh, topic as well, because uh, particularly as an uh, emerging um, uh, researcher and uh, uh, being women as well, it is very hard to, to sometimes feel that you can one day become a leader when you see so few uh, women that are in leadership positions. Yeah. So yeah. we need to make sure that we are giving visibility to all sorts of leaders so that people can look up and they can realize that they can also become those leaders in the future. Yeah. So I say, you know, it can be demoralizing to look at leadership and, and see poor representation and, and, and that then fuels this poverty of aspiration. People just think, ah, there's no point. Uh, but there is a point, actually. And, and I think things are changing. And as I say, the change can't happen overnight because you need to build the next generation of leaders and uh, you need to grow them. But I think that's happening now. And I think we're going to see a completely different approach over the next few years. Do you have any advice specifically for women in hypertension research? <clears throat> well, I, I think it's great that we're seeing more and more women come through in hypertension research. Um, there's a lot of women now in leadership roles in hypertension, which is fantastic. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, I, I think what I would say is that just, you know, apply yourself 
go for the big jobs, go for the opportunities, uh, but recognize it's going to be hard work, uh, not just because you're a woman, but because it's hard work, whoever you are, to succeed. You're going to have to put the effort in, <clears throat> but the opportunities are now probably greater than they've ever been uh, for women in science and, 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 and women in hypertension in particular, because there's a recognition that that this needed to happen and this needed to change. And it's good to see that it is happening and it is changing. And it's being led by people like you, which is, is fantastic. Thank you. Um, and my final question uh, for you is about the pandemic and the impact that this has had in our junior researchers uh, or emerging researchers. Um, I was wondering if you can comment on what we could be doing better to support these emerging researchers. Yeah. Well, we've been very conscious of this. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm in a big university. I mean, all of the universities around the world are, struggle with this. You know, and we've gone online with a lot of our resilience courses and tried wherever possible to have one-to-one -one meetings on a fairly regular basis. I have a regular meeting with my research group on Teams, well, and that works quite well. But interestingly enough, we all got together a few weeks ago uh, just for coffee and and face to face, and it just made such a difference. I mean, it, it is, it is, it is tough uh, to to do stuff on Teams. I got one of my uh, key research people coming in today uh, just to catch up for for an hour because uh, we haven't seen each other personally for for quite a long time. So, I would say, you know, use the opportunity for remote meetings and 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 have them regularly. But whenever you can get the chance, um, when it's safe to do so and not against any local policy, excuse me, to meet, then 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 take that opportunity to meet because I think you'll find that it is much more, you know, um, I don't know, enlightening, refreshing. It's just helpful. You, you just cover topics. We we covered so many topics in an hour in a face to face meeting that just wouldn't have happened doing it. A, on a remote meeting. But one of the things for me, which has been quite interesting is I've done a lot of lectures online. I've been able to continue to communicate around the world uh, at symposia and congresses, which I love doing. And, and it's been great to see so many young people uh, engaging with those congresses. Because, you know, one of the things that's really tough is if you've worked for, I don't know, two years on a project, your data's just emerging and you submit it to one of the big society meetings, and it's a little bit down, deflating that the meeting is online and you haven't got the opportunity to stand on that stage in front of all those people and proudly discuss what you've been doing for the last two years and that you've been passionate about and get the feedback and come off the stage and have the interaction with all of the other people working in the field. That's what we're missing. But, but you know, my message would be, don't worry, this will be over soon and we'll soon be able to get back to what I hope will be normal meetings. And I'm hoping we can all get together for the ISH in Kyoto um, towards the end of next year, um, uh, when I hope when we'll be through this pandemic. My, my hope is Omicron is the last big variant that you know is coming through. Uh, we hope it's gonna be milder than the current ones. And if it is, it'll probably immunize a lot of the world. Uh, and uh, maybe then we can begin to open up. We can't carry on locking down and every time there's a new variant, we've got to get through this somehow. So yeah, I'm optimistic that next year, towards the end of next year, you know, we'll see a return to the conference season. It wouldn't it be wonderful if that return was 
at the ISH and in the beautiful Kyoto. I, I hope you can all get there and then we can listen to some of your science live. I hope so too. Yeah, no. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been a real pleasure and a Christmas treat to me. I really love <laughs> talking to you. Thank you. You're too kind, Francine, but it has been great fun talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.